you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. The bounce for stocks, whether the worst of the pullback is over. We're also counting down to today's big Fed decision, whether we're going to learn more about that much-talked-about taper the Investment Committee debating what all of that means to your money. With me for the hour today, Stephanie Link, Joe Terranova, Jim Labenthal, John Najarian. He's the co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. Let's go to the wall. Let's show you what stocks are doing. I mentioned the bounce. It's a good one, too. Almost 450 for the Dow, one and a third percent. 34,367, the S&P 500, better than 1% to the upside, as is the NASDAQ. Um, and I'm going to start with something uh, in the NASDAQ. John Najarian, because uh, you alerted us as we continue to watch shares of Facebook, and we're going to get to the broad market picture, and there are a lot of moves that you guys are making today, but I want to focus on this put buying that you've just noticed, and a good amount of it in Facebook. Can you tell us what you're seeing? Sure, Scott. Um, the, uh, and it's my second largest holding, so it certainly didn't feel good when I started seeing this one today. But people just came flooding in. And by people, I mean most probably uh, a whole lot of institutions, Scott, because this is really big put buying. Um, they've been buying from the 350 puts all the way down to the 330 puts. But the heaviest activity, the uh, 345 puts, 340 puts, 335 puts, all of these trading in excess of 15 to 18,000 contracts. To give you a little bit of a metric, um, the average over the last month that we'd seen is about 85,000 puts per day. We already surpassed that in the first hour today, and uh, we've traded now over 150,000 puts in just these first two and a half hours, Scott. That's a lot in Facebook. Um, and we, we know some of the reasons behind it, of course. Uh, the uh, moves by Apple that have really hurt these guys. Um, now they're going to be disclosing more about how much of a hurt this has put on their advertising business, the moves that Apple has made. Yeah. And certainly the acceleration of puts is noteworthy, we thought. A, a bigger impact, um, the company is saying that those changes that Apple has made is, is going to be impacting um, the company. So your, your position here is in stock. Um, and options, right, John? So can you give me an idea? Are you doing anything along with this move that you're noticing? Um, I probably, over the last two days, Scott, have sold almost half of that stock position, so it's no longer my second largest. But that's not to say, oh, I avoided the pain. I didn't. I took the pain. I got out of this half of this position. I decided it was just too unwieldy. I do own puts against the rest of my Facebook stock, Scott. Uh, but, yeah, this is, uh, you know, a pretty bad. We've been trading in a range you know, roughly in that bouncing back and forth between 365 and 380 for Facebook. When we broke out of that and now plumbing down towards those July lows, I just really didn't want to experience any more pain from that. So like wow. I say, cut the position. It's just like choking up on a bat, Scott. 
um, you know, when you're um, not hitting them as hard or as well as you'd like, you choke up on the bat. I choked up on the bat here in Facebook, cut the position back and bought a bunch of puts against my stock. It's interesting um, that, you know, I'm, I'm surprised to hear you say that you've cut your your position in half. Uh, what was, you know, your your largest or second largest um, position. So you, you clearly think that this story is is changing for a stock that, for all intents and purposes, has been Teflon to almost anything, John, that has has hit it, regulatory or otherwise. Right. Um, but this particular thing, Scott, seems like something that will get analysts to downgrade um, or at least take their targets down. I'll call that a downgrade. I know my buddy Josh would call it a clown grade. Um, but certainly when you've got something that's going to materially impact business like this, the others are all just threats. The threat of uh, intervention by the European Union or by U.S. regulators, those are threats. But something that's material like this is one of the reasons that, you know, I just really didn't want to see uh, the position go down to where Facebook hits 300 or lower. And then I'm chasing um, trying to get calls against it. I had already rolled down calls significantly. And the fact that they had accelerated the buying of these puts got me, you know, in a position where I just wanted to flatten it out a little more, Scott. Yeah, it's a greater than 4% decline. Now we're at the lows of the day. Doc, I appreciate you bringing that news to us, our viewers, um, especially a, sure. a widely held stock. One of the pillars, really, of, of big tech, Joe, um, one of the things that has helped keep the market from experiencing that larger correction that some have called for, as you've had a role in a lot of subsectors underneath the market in a, in a heck of a lot of stocks, it generally has not hit big tech. The other big tech stocks, as I look at them as, as we have this conversation, are, it's not like they're reacting or they're all trading lower because it's a decidedly good day for stocks. I, I look at Apple, for example, it's higher. I pull up Microsoft, it's higher. I'm going to pull up Google, and it is higher too. So it's a Facebook-specific story. As long as it remains that, Joe, the overall market is not going to have that sort of rollover effect that some are looking for. Yeah, did, did you do a mic drop there? Because you absolutely should. And I think that's the story of this week. You really could not get the fangs uh, to elicit the type of selling uh, that would uh, bring forth a significant correction in the market. Scott, I think so far year to date, 80% of the S&P 500 has already experienced a 10% correction. So the resiliency of the last place, that last bastion of support was found in these mega cap equity names. And you did not see the breakdown this week. I think that's clearly uh, indicative of the resiliency. And I also think, Scott, a little bit of it has to do with the buyback authorizations. And I would caution uh, some of those who are looking at the decline in Facebook today, go take a look at what Facebook has in order uh, in terms of what they could buy back for their stock. That might buffer the decline. I, I saw a number of buybacks, and we've been talking about that buyback story, too, sort of countering some of the negativity that's been out in the market, maybe a potential driver for a correction. We say, well, you know, there are a lot of buybacks, and that has always been a stimulant for, um, for stocks. Now, Stephanie Link, we come in today, we look at a nice bounce for stocks. We're wondering whether it's going to hold, whether the Evergrande situation, the worst of it, has now passed. And that's going to do a lot in terms of sentiment. Bob Pisani earlier today highlighted something I thought was really important, the technical damage that's been done underneath the surface of the market. 
that only 48% of stocks right now are above their 200-day moving average. What that means in terms of, you know, is this a viable market today? It obviously appears to be. Yesterday, you bought Caterpillar and Diamondback Energy on the sell-off. Perhaps a lot of that related to the Evergrande situation. Today, you're buying more Dow Chemical. So you're looking for opportunity to put more money to work in this sort of environment. Yeah, look, it's hard to time the market unless you're a day trader and you want to get in and out. I'm not good enough to do that, and nor would I do that. That's not my process. That's not my strategy. We talked about yesterday, I focus on fundamentals. What does that even mean? I look for the number one or number two player in each industry, and I hope that uh, they can get on sale. You root for them to go down so you can buy more of them. That's what I did yesterday. That's what I did. That's what I'm doing today in terms of Dow. Um, and by the way, the last couple of weeks, I've bought Expedia. I've bought Stanley Black & Decker. I bought Prudential. So a little bit along the way on the dips because I can't time it. So I look for number one or number two on sale with strong business fundamentals, good market shares, good total addressable markets, good leadership, good, hopefully good uh, uh, earnings and margins and free cash flow. All of those things I look at. And when the stocks hit a level that I'm comfortable buying, that's what I'll do. So um, as I mentioned, I did buy a bunch of things. Uh, Dow Chemical is down 21% from its high. Um, it's an economically sensitive company, but it has a lot of diversified end markets like plastics and packaging and healthcare, auto housing. I like all of those end markets. They're doing a really good job at cost cutting since they've split from DuPont um, and they have pricing power. That's most important. So they can handle some of this input cost inflation that they are seeing that everybody is seeing, including FedEx yesterday. Takes me to, to the friendly farmer, Mr. All In, who we've come to call <laughs> Jim Laventhal. Um, is the correction over a three percent or whatever it was, um, you know, this week, yesterday? So it was down four, two down days four ago. Is that, is that it? I, I think it may well be. Um, now, that's pretty incautious of me to say that we were down four and a half percent peak to trough. I think what I'm more comfortable saying is that I really doubt you're going to get the full 10 percent of a correction. Um, and the reason I say that, we can go through the long list of positives, we can go through the long list of negatives. There's one positive that trumps everything else, and it's the Federal Reserve. For all the talk of taper, maybe it starts in November, maybe it starts in December, the Fed is still buying bonds right now, which means right now $120 billion a month of cash is coming into the financial system. That cash needs to find a home. If you compare 1.3% on the 10-year Treasury to the 1.3% dividend yield on the stock market, now you know 5%, at least on Monday, off the high, I think it's just a no-brainer that that cash goes into the market. That's frankly why we've bounced off the 50-day moving average as much as we have uh, this year. I'm aware that we broke through the 50-day moving average this week, <laughs> but still, I think we got to simplify this. The Fed is still in the game, and they are big in the game. That cash is going to find its way into the stock market and keep us from a full 10% correction. Uh, I haven't sold a share, Scott. I'm very comfortable with my holdings. Now, I don't know. Tomorrow might be down. Who knows? Um, if you call me on, you know I'll discuss it. But I will say this. I think by the end of the year, we are likely to set new highs in the stock market. Remember, we're also in the seasonably lousy time of the year. It's going to pass in another week. I got targets that are 300 points higher on the S&P, right? I mean, Dubrovko, yeah. Lakos, J.P. Morgan, there are others as well. John Najarian, you must think that the worst of the selling is over, particularly in one of the hardest hit areas of the market. That's commodity related stocks now, you know, related to China and, and whatever else, because over the last two days, you bought Rio Tinto. You bought Freeport McMoran. Mm -hmm. 
you bought BHP and you bought Vale. No, those are all down substantially over the last month. BHP's down 20% in a month. Vale's down 23% in a month. Freeport's down 17% in a month. Rio Tinto's down 27% since the beginning <laughs> of August. Tell us about these moves that you made, what the statement is that you're making. Well, um, I think a lot of these, Scott, uh, really started getting hit um, when people were uh, betting on how big the stimulus package would be, and they were sort of haircutting it against Afghanistan and what was going on as far as uh, political capital. So I, I think some of these were just w overdone, um, and I do think that there will be demand for exactly what Freeport and Vale do in particular, BHP, of course, and Rio Tinto as well. Um, notice these weren't uh, just gold mining plays or anything like this. The, these are metals uh, and miners that I think are the, the necessary parts of some sort of construction that's going to be going on, Scott, but maybe that's a lot less than it would have been a month ago. Uh, so they took a haircut. Like you say, average was close to 20% on these. I thought that represented a decent area to get in. And the volatility's up, which means I get bigger premiums when I write calls against these. Um, so hopefully after today's uh, Fed notes at 2 o'clock, I'll get a chance to sell calls at a higher strike against these positions that I just accumulated. I got you. Joe Terranova, you're a buyer and a seller today. Uh, was a very interesting stuff. Okay. And Farmer Jim, he's not going to be a happy man. You sold GM? Oh, yes, he is. You sold GM? <laughs> Jim should be ecstatic about that. I'm finally out. I bought GM on March 18th <laughs> at 59.80. It has been an awful trade for me. Jim and I are in a completely different place, and there's a great lesson here for the viewers about where you actually get into a stock. So, Scott, I like to place time stops. I gave myself six months. This has been obviously a horrible purchase for me. Uh, and then there was something glaring off the screens to me in the last couple of days, and that was NVIDIA. NVIDIA was down 8%. Look, NVIDIA has been since inception in the quality momentum index, and I don't personally own it. It's been one of the best performers. I don't have much crypto exposure. NVIDIA actually gives me a way to, give that, to get that crypto exposure. So I took advantage of that 8% decline in NVIDIA, and unfortunately, I had to sell out of General Motors... Uh, because I time stopped out and I just basically bought into the stock too oh. high. Oh, so you bought and now NVIDIA. Jimmy can you, make you, money. It'll you, go you, up. You got out of GM and bought NVIDIA. Guys in the back, if you could throw me a six-month chart of General Motors, to, uh, General Motors uh, so we can all see what Joe's talking about in the time period of his disappointment. Um, there you go. Uh, it's down 12.5%. Farmer Jim, what say you? Yeah. Well, first off, I'm reaching to get the knife out of my back, both from Joe and from John, not buying Cliffs, but buying every other metal miner. Oh, okay, I already we'll have Cliffs. <laughs> um, no, listen, I understand, Joe. Joe and I invest differently. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's safe to say I'm more long term in this name than Joe. So I see the period of time in which he's been disappointed. I hate disappointing my friend Joe. Um, but I think that there is a lot more room to run with General Motors. And the key thing here, we know this, is when the semiconductor shortage starts to ease. And it's not necessarily there's going to be a bell rung, but when it starts to ease, um, somebody will say something. Ford CEO, Porsche's CEO, somebody will say something. These stocks are going to be up 
up 10, 15% in a day have you bought when more? there's the slightest sign have, of it. Have you bought more over the past six months as you've watched this yes. thing bleed? <clears throat> yes. Yes, I have. And I'm, it's not, look, I don't like to see it bleed. I hate what, what Joe is feeling right now, but I feel very confident that this is going to be a $75 stock, maybe not by the end of the year, but you, you know, because it depends on how long the semis take to unclog. But in 12 months, I think this could very well be a $75 stock. All right. Let's um, let's move. Talk about hey, some other things. Uh, I just want to keep it moving, Joe. Sorry. Um, sure. Yeah, the XLF. Yep. You sold the XLF. Mm-hmm. You sold Honeywell. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've been talking a lot about the banks yes. and you've talked about Honeywell on numerous occasions. I know how much you liked it. Why would you sell it? All right. So let me tell you what I bought there. XLF, what I wanted to do is I wanted to have a, a concentrated financial investment here in the consumer, in the recovery of potentially business travel. I've been watching the show. I've been hearing a lot about, well, is potentially uh, the fact that corporate travel is not going to return quickly. Is that priced into the airlines? I heard a lot. I heard your comments yesterday on thinking that we are actually going to get a little bit of a a second reopening here, which I tend to agree with. So what did I want to do here? Well, you have the White House authorizing vaccinated international travelers into the U.S. in November. That's a positive. Ultimately, you are going to have a return of corporate travel. To me, American Express is the best way that I can exhibit my belief in that occurring. Um, A lot of this, Scott, is just about rotating and taking advantage of the volatility that we're seeing in the market. So I wanted to get a little bit more concentrated there. In terms of Honeywell, Honeywell is a great company. But in the industrial sector, my view, based on the evidence, is that the U.S. is leading the industrial recovery relative to the rest of the world. So what did I do? I traded out of Honeywell. I purchased waste management. The revenue exposure for waste management domestically here in the United States is significantly higher than Honeywell. And also, waste management carries a much lower beta than Honeywell does. And in the environment of this stormy September, that's what I wanted. All right. Uh, I appreciate you bringing us up to date. Uh, Let me get to Elon Moy now. She has a news alert on the debt limit. Another big story that we continue to follow down in Washington. Elon. Well, Scott, six former Treasury secretaries are now sending a letter to congressional leadership urging them to raise the debt limit as the political stalemate on Capitol Hill continues to deepen. Now, the Treasury secretaries do acknowledge the political realities of the situation, saying that our politics have become more polarized and divisive and that addressing the debt limit has become more contentious and politically fraught. But they warn that failing to address the debt limit could cause serious economic and national security harm, even if it is just a short-lived default. They also warn that delaying a resolution can also be detrimental and undermine confidence in the political system at home and abroad. Now, this letter does mirror some of the private conversations that these officials have been having with uh, members of Congress over the past several days. I can tell you that I saw Hank Paulson walking into Senator Mitch McConnell's office to have just this type of conversation. The Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has also reached out to Republicans, including Mitch McConnell, as well as uh, Representative Kevin Brady on the House side. Republicans say they will not raise the debt limit because of Democrats spending in other areas. But of course, Democrats say that this should be a shared responsibility. Now the pressure is ramping up on Congress to act with this letter from six former Treasury secretaries. Scott. All right. Elon Moy, thank you much. The political games continue down in Washington. Speaking of Washington, a couple hours until the big Fed decision, our senior economics reporter Steve Leisman joins us now with what to expect. Are we going to get something 
more substantial related to the taper today, Steve? A little bit, maybe, Scott. I think you're going to get an uh, idea that we're on our way to announcing a taper. Uh, you know, we were pretty uh, sure that there was some announcement coming this week, uh, back in early August. Then what happened is the, uh, you know, the Delta variant began to spread. Uh, jobs number came in softer than expected. And I think that's perhaps caused the Fed to back off just a little bit. Uh, so what they're going to do instead of announcing in September, the odds on bet right now is that they announce in November and begin to taper in December. I mean, there are just kind of too many things going on right now. And I'm, I'm even thinking about, you know, not that the debt ceiling is necessarily top of mind for, for Jay Powell. However, as that remains unsettled and we're on some sort of debt ceiling cliff, do you really want to change Fed policy um, and upset the market in a way where it could already be upset because we're talking about the debt limit? If you follow, I don't necessarily agree, Scott. I think <clears throat> that um, the economy is in is on sure enough footing now on its own. These things come along. The debt ceiling has been, I don't know, the head fake of the century, at yeah. least uh, this early century, at least a couple of times. It was the head fake of the latter part of the last century a little bit, but certainly this century. Um, it, it's never really become, I think it's more of a trading opportunity for the guys on your desk than it is a real opportunity. But Scott, would you give me a second here? I want to go back to what something Jim Labenthal said earlier in your conversation, which I thought was fascinating. So I ran the numbers here. You ready? Yeah. If the Fed starts to taper in December, okay, it will still buy from now until June $660 billion a month, and that's if it goes down by $15 billion a month. So there's a lot, even if the Fed starts to reduce its asset purchases, it will continue to buy assets through June of 2022. It will accumulate another $660 billion worth of assets on its balance sheet. Scott, I know you're too young to remember. Actually, you're not. It's Thank a joke. You. But, but remember, Q, you remember QE2, Scott? <laughs> QE2 was $600 billion. So now, throw to your committee this. What if the Fed was announcing today an asset purchase program that was bigger than QE2? Oh, I was literally which is essentially thinking the same what thing. it's doing. You know? Yeah. Which is literally what it's doing instead of, ta- instead of tapering. It's really saying, hey, we're going to go out and be buying assets all the way through June just at $15 billion bucks a month less. That, that's exactly where my mind was going as you were describing it saying if we just announced today the size of, the, of what we're buying, right. uh, the market would be pretty darn happy right. with that, Jim Labenthal, wouldn't it? Money, guys. It's real cash coming into the system, being created by the federal cash reserve. Cash money. And it's got to find a home. It's not going to sit in cash. It's not because there's zero percent. It's not even going to go to corporate bonds. You know high-yield bonds right now have a negative real yield? It's going to go where you can only the only place you can get a positive real return right now, which is stocks. So, look, there's a concept in life called keep kiss. Keep it simple, stupid or keep it simple, sailor. That's what I'm doing today. That cash is coming into the system, period. I'm not worried about taper in the slightest. So, Leesman, I mean, I also you're talking about they're going to continue to be, you know, buying into 2022. You saw what Jamie Dimon said, I, I assume on the possibility that the Fed has to do a lot more to tamp down inflation if it gets much hotter and lasts much longer than Jay Powell thinks that it might. Let's listen to that, and I want you to react on the other side. 
of inflation is so high that the Fed has to do more traditional management of the economy, like jam on the brakes, pull out liquidity, then you're going to see a huge reaction. And I'm not predicting that, but it's possible they have to do that sometime next year. I mean, you're going to get more of those kinds of sentiments as you get later in the year yeah. and we watch inflation. How, how do you think about that? Well, and I think I'm persuaded by what Jim Buller told me back when we did our virtual Jackson Hole conference, uh, which is that um, the more the Fed does now to ease back on QE, the less it's likely to have to do on rates down the road to fight inflation. I, I think there's a risk here that quantitative easing, the asset purchase, are doing more harm than good. It's interesting. John Riding from Breen, who you know, Scott, points out there are 1.3 jobs available for every unemployed worker. The Fed has done its job. It's unclear to me how additional asset purchases are going to take the unemployed people and put those in those jobs. If there weren't the job openings, I'd say, you know what, maybe there is more work for monetary policy to do here. But the fact that the jobs are open, QE does not put people into those jobs. There's all kinds of reasons why. You talked about that second reopening. I think that's a clever idea that we have to think about. But that monetary policy is not going to solve that problem. Yeah, I mean, buying, buying mortgage bonds is not going to do anything to, on that note. And, you know, they've been late. They, they could have already tapered and it wouldn't have had probably a dramatic impact once they started to meet the goals that you just said that they, they did. And, and that conversation is going to continue on and on during today, the lead up to the Fed, once the Fed makes its decision, and then right. we, we hear. Right. I, 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 think, I think they have a chance to get out of this, Scott, without the runaway inflation. I, I, I think you were talking earlier. Boy, I love this at the top of the show because I pick up all these ideas. But the idea that the chip shortage is going to work itself out. I'll be looking uh, later this week at the supply shortage from a numerical standpoint, trying to get some of the data around that. But if that if the supply shortage can ease, we can get people back into these jobs. And, and actually, I'm a little heartened. This is a crazy idea to hear that companies earnings are being affected by higher costs. It means they just can't pass it all along. It means there are some ceilings out there and companies raising prices. And I want to see how those natural breaks from raising prices start to play through the economy. People may not buy the stuff. People may buy less of it. Companies try to raise prices. They're going to look for greater efficiencies. Whole series of things that has to happen. The Fed has a chance of getting out of this without a whole lot of inflation down the road. It has to happen. If it doesn't, that's where you start to get concerned. All right. We'll be watching, Steve, as always. Thank you very much for that. Up next, FedEx shares, they're tanking. We're going to give you the trade on that stock. Steve Weiss is going to call in. He's been a big supporter of it. You know that. What's he doing now? That stock's getting a hammer today, down 8%. We'll hear from him. Plus, Disney CEO Bob Chapek says subscriber growth for its streaming service has slowed. Stock was down. Wall Street, though, coming to the defense today. We'll tell you. Do it next. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit ODFL.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. 
We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. In Louisville, Kentucky, one child has been killed, two more injured in a drive-by shooting at a school bus stop. Police are asking for anyone in the area with a security camera to check their video for possible clues. And on the news, the search for the motive and who was behind the shooting. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. The EPA considering big cuts to the nation's biofuel blending requirements. That's according to Reuters. The proposal would be a big win for the oil industry, which argued for the cuts due to slowing fuel demand during the pandemic. R. Kelly says that he will not take the stand in his sex trafficking trial. The defense is expected to rest its case this afternoon, clearing the way for the start of closing arguments. And the lone winning ticket for last night's Mega Millions drawing was sold at a pizza shop not far from New York City's Rockefeller Center. The ticket is worth $432 million. If you're wondering, the Powerball jackpot is still growing. It is up to $490 million for tonight's drawing. You're now up to date. Scott, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, appreciate that. Thank you, Rahel Solomon. All right, let's talk FedEx. It's the stock of the day. Shares are plunging after a big earnings miss. They cut the outlook. Steve Weiss owns it. That's why he's calling in. It's the first earnings miss in almost two years. The biggest miss in four years. Steve Weiss, what are you doing with this? Well, first of all, thanks for letting me take a spot that's normally reserved for Flyer Jen to explain an underperformer. So I very much appreciate that. Uh, look, you know, the market was telling me something. The stock specifically was telling me something. It's been trading horrendously since they reported last quarter. Kept going down. Yesterday it was down, so it had its foot in my neck saying, we're going to miss. I actually spoke to the company a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I've spoken to others that do the same thing, and labor is an issue. The street move was going to miss, but not this bad. This is pretty bad. What am I doing? I was going to wait to buy it because it's trading at what's an historically or near historically low multiple at around 11 times. They're raising prices across the board. Uh, and labor, I believe, is going to loosen up now that we're done with, this, with the summer. So, so I added a little bit today. Uh, I cut the position just slightly uh, after the call or when they reported the numbers, down about 6 bucks, And quite frankly, really shocked to see it down this much. But to me, the story hasn't changed. It's only been pushed back by a quarter or so. There's only one firm that downgraded it. Golden came out, reiterated. They're pretty good in this space. Others have as well. So I'm staying with it. I added a little today, as I said, and I'll continue to add as the stock stays. So just to make, to make, make certain um, this, nothing, none of this gets lost in, in the shuffle, you cut your position in it yesterday. You bought a little right. bit back today. Correct. Correct. All right. Um, still, still, still pretty painful. You know. No, I hear you. I, I just want to make sure we're we're clear on that, um, especially since it's a phoner. Raymond James downgrades the stock to market perform. That's the downgrade you're talking about. But J.P. Morgan took it off its focus list. And I also note mm-hmm. that you know UPS has just trounced this. So, why is FedEx still better than UPS? Well, UPS is unionized, and they've got union discussions coming up. Uh, number one. And those will have much higher, will be much tougher than going out and hiring people to come in. Number two, uh, FedEx, as you know, they weren't making money on the Amazon uh, uh, arrangement, so they got rid of Amazon. UPS now has Amazon, and that's a low-margin business that's going to take up a lot of their capacity. 
So I think UPS actually will underperform going forward, and that FedEx is much more in control of their fate in terms of the labor situation, which is critical and will be critical going forward from here as well. Joe T. Uh, Steve Weiss, thank you for calling in. I, I, I appreciate okay. that. I know our viewers wanted to hear from you on, on FedEx in that big slide today. Uh, Joe T., UPS was one of the stock picks in, your, in our stock summit, which we had mid-year. Um, how, how do you view mm-hmm. what FedEx delivered, pardon the pun, and what it potentially means going forward for UPS? Well, I think that the labor challenges are very clear, and I think that the very significant negative consequence of all of this is that the labor challenges for these companies reside themselves ultimately in the advancement of technological solutions that's going to bring forth a lot quicker autonomous delivery. UPS has been outperforming FedEx because they are really ahead of FedEx in terms of advancing that technology. In 2019, they bought a company called Too Simple that specializes in exactly what I'm describing. More recently, FedEx is talking about, on their Dallas to Houston route, utilizing Aurora, which is introducing autonomous driving. And I think that's a very unfortunate negative consequence for both of these companies. Um, FedEx and UPS both reside in the Quality Momentum Index and the ETF that tracks it. There is a clear breakdown in technical momentum. I could see that. Um, If you're looking at the stock today, I couldn't advise buying it. And I think that uh, over the coming quarter, you'll probably see uh, continued negative price action for both of these. Stephanie Link, FedEx, this this is the note of what you you told our, our producers. FedEx can't execute. I previously owned it. I learned the hard way. I would not touch it with a 10 foot pole. Yeah. Ask me how I really feel. Um, Look, I think there are some positives to the quarter. (laughs) Revenues were in line. They did see higher yields. And revenue per piece was up 9%. So those are the positives, right? So the revenue, the demand is there. It's what we've been talking about. The supply chain are the issues for them. It's going to be for everyone. It's going to be for UPS, too. They're not going to escape this at all. But this, the reason I wouldn't buy this here, and I am tempted at, at 12 times forward estimates, I just, they can't execute consistently. And I have learned the hard way. I have owned this stock, this stock before. So if I had to choose between the two, UPS would be it. It's not exactly cheap, though. I do like the 2-2 yield that UPS gives. But I think Carol Tomei is doing the right things. I just think that the macro is very, very challenging right now. And there are other places in industrials that I'd much rather play in. And right. that's what I'm doing. We'll make that the last word on that segment. All right, coming up. Dr. J, John Nigerian has unusual activity. We still have to talk about Disney, too, as the street comes to the defense of that stock. We'll do it next. Procter & Gamble, HP, and Salesforce are among 86 companies to sign on to the Climate Pledge this week, committing to meet the Paris Agreement's goals 10 years early and achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2040. Signatories to the Amazon-backed pledge are expected to help reduce carbon emissions by 1.98 billion metric tons from a 2020 baseline. And that's your ESG Fast Fact of the Day. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. 
Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, Dr. J, unusual, what do you got? Well, Scott, how about an e-commerce play? Pitney Bowes, because they're, of course, intimately involved in the shipping of things. Um, And if you take a look at the October 7 calls, they were aggressively bought during this session, um, and they're only slightly more uh, than the the price of the stock. They're the seven strike calls. The stock was about $7.20. They started buying these. I bought those calls classic example of somebody that wants to simulate a long position. Second trade, uh, Netflix. Weekly calls at the 600 strike with the stock around 594, 595. They're betting that by Friday, this one pops. I bought these calls, 12,000 of those. That's 1.2 million share equivalent. That's a big enough reason for me to jump in, Scott. Yeah, I bet it is, Dr. J. Thank you very much for that. We are one week away from CNBC's Delivering Alpha. It's September 29th unparalleled insight and strategies from the biggest names in investing. You can register for this virtual event at DeliveringAlpha.com. And ahead of that big event, exclusive results are coming up of the first ever CNBC Delivering Alpha survey on where the stock market goes from here. Those results revealed next. CNBC's first ever Delivering Alpha Investor Survey is revealing how more than 400 CIOs, equity strategists, portfolio managers, investors and contributors are feeling about the markets right now. Leslie Picker joining us following the money for us as always. What would you find? What do we know? Hey, Scott, there's a bit of optimism out there. 95% of investors we survey expect the S&P 500 to stay flat or move higher over the next 12 months. And yet that's apparently not a signal to investors to put more money to work in equities right now. More than three quarters of respondents said it's actually time to become more conservative in the stock market as opposed to becoming more aggressive. And when it comes to the various areas investors are seeking to increase exposure, equities were the choice for about a quarter of investors. But alternatives like Private equity, hedge funds, and real estate are a big draw. Only 11% wanted to boost holdings of fixed income, kind of a theme we've been hearing over the last few years or so. Cyclicals are where investors want to be, with 39% saying they are overweight. Still, defensives came in second, with 30% of respondents saying they want to be overweight in that area. Now, as for sectors, investors are most bullish on financials, technology, and energy, and bearish about utilities, staples, and consumer discretionary. And where in the world are investors seeking the most opportunity? Well, nearly half said it's 
the U.S., followed by emerging markets. Just a reminder, Scott, CNBC's Delivering Alpha is on September 29th, one week from now. Join some of the biggest names in investing at this can't-miss virtual event. There's still time to register at DeliveringAlpha.com. Scott. And we are looking forward to that. Leslie Picker, thank you so much. By the way, I'm going to be speaking with two big investors there, the Alpha Maverick. That's what we're calling Chamath Palihapitiya. I'll have a conversation with the founder and CEO of Social Capital. Also, the noted investor, Brad Gerstner of Altimeter. Looking forward to speaking with both of them. We have a great lineup. Hope you register. Please do that. DeliveringAlpha.com. Straight ahead, the trade on Disney. The street's still positive on the stock, despite some comments from the CEO. We'll debate that next. We're watching shares of Disney closely today after CEO Bob Chapek said the company had, quote, some headwinds in its streaming subscriber growth. Shares fell sharply on that news. Wall Street, though, not having it. They're out defending the stock today. You can see it's getting a lift of one and three quarters percent. Credit Suisse reiterates Disney outperformed. Disney added to the focus list to J.P. Morgan. Bank of America reiterates Disney a buy. $223 is the price target. Uh, Farmer Jim, you own Disney. You concerned about what Mr. Chapek had to say? I never want to appear to be blasé, Scott. I'm not overly concerned. I've been consistent, I believe, in saying this is a multi-year hold for me. Um, the fact that this quarter is not going as great as maybe people expected, that's the sort of normal bump in a road when you've got a, a multi-year uh, investment. I go back to November, December of last year when they first laid out the, uh, the metrics, the targets that they had for uh, Disney+. Plus. They have been generally exceeding those targets. If they fall a little bit short this quarter, that's not going to upset the overall thesis. This is a hybrid stock, remember. It's not just Disney+, Plus; it's a reopening stock as well. I like that double piston engine. I'm not giving up, but I will say this. I think it's going to be stuck. The shares are going to be stuck in this 175, 185 range, probably for a couple of months on this news. John Nigerian, does this, you know, stagnate things from a stock standpoint for a while, as Jim says? Well, overall, uh, you know, at that Goldman Sachs conference, that communicopia or whatever they called it, Scott, um, I thought overall the, the statements were pretty bullish uh, about how um, after Labor Day, uh, park started to reaccelerate, uh, that is, people through the theme parks and so forth. I think this one will be fine, but I'm not really surprised that the uh, streaming slowed down a little bit because of the growth being just so phenomenal during the first year of it. I think it's not surprising to see that slow a bit. Um, stock is just kind of mired in an area here, Scott. I think it'll be a while before we see 225, mm -hmm. but it might be by the end of next year that we get up to that level. Steph, you have some interesting comments here on my notes. Uh, it's not cheap. If it pulled back 10 to 15 percent, okay, that would interest you. Is, is that what you think might happen? I don't really know. I, I just think um, there's no catalyst to owning it in the short term. To Jim's point, it could just be stuck here for a little bit. It's, this really shouldn't be too surprising because we know Comcast announced very disappointing net ads last week. So these guys benefited from stay at home, right? And so now people are going back to work and now the reality is hitting. And so in my mind, this stock trades definitely on streaming and not the parks and not the movies. They just don't. Um, so in my mind, if you do see a pullback, I would get interested in it, but it would have to fall so that I can justify the valuation. Oh, by the way, they said that they're not going to reinstate the dividend or buy back any stock for a while. That's a little disappointing, too. Joe Terranova, I'm looking at a stock with the ticker symbol 
NFLX. $593.50. 52-week high is only six fifteen. Not that far away. That's how yeah, you're Scott. playing this space, right? Absolutely, and I'd love Jimmy to join me while he sits patiently and watches Disney return nothing for him over the coming months. Jimmy, <laughs> buy a little Netflix. That's where the positive momentum is. Now, he waited too long now. What's he going to buy it? Close to the 52-week high? Why not? Uh, buy listen, high? Joe's, <laughs> buy Joe's making a compelling, a, point, a compelling point. There's a lot of streaming stocks that have been stuck in the mud, and Netflix is the only one that's breaking out. Um, I, I have a hard time. I mean, I just, you'll fault me for this, but the valuation of Netflix versus a Disney versus a Viacom. Okay, everybody start throwing the brick bats, but that's where I am, guys. All right. If the valuation, the valuation is something that they're growing into. They're cleaning up the balance sheet. It's looking a heck of a lot better, Jimmy. Look at that balance sheet. You're going to like it. Jimmy, I'm listening. I'm hearing, I'm hearing you, Joe. You're making a compelling case. You know the title of Joe's book, Jim? <laughs> Don't buy him cheap. <laughs> No, do you seriously know the title? <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> don't buy them cheap. Buy high, sell higher. That's right. That's, that's your... Fits you all right, I think. We'll do final trades next. All right, we're going to get a viewer question in before we do final trades. And, Joe, it's coming to you because it's on Nike. Is it a good time to get in, asks Mike in California. That's ahead of the earnings. Nike, of course, in the Joe T ETF. Yeah, you're going to have to listen in tomorrow night and see if there's some clarity on the COVID-related factory closures in Vietnam. They began in the middle of July. They've been extended through the end of September. 50% of footwear for Nike uh, comes from Vietnam. So ultimately, is Nike going to have to lower guidance as a result of that, we'll find out tomorrow evening, but I'm not doing anything ahead of tomorrow night's earnings report. Okay. Uh, I mean, you, you personally sold it a while ago, right? We talk about the ETF, but you, you did own it, but you sold it. Yeah, violated my own discipline, which proves, you know, we, if you, you cut us, we all bleed. We're hum humans. We make mistakes. I was concerned about the social aspect mm -hmm. uh, as it relates to ESG for Nike, labor conditions in China. I sold out at 130. The stock rallied significantly. I was wrong. It is still in the ETF. Just give me a name for a final trade, if you could, please. Garmin. Okay. G-R-I-M-N. Okay. Thank you. Steph. VF Corp, great brands, mid-teens earnings growth, growth at gross margins are going higher, 3% yield. All right. Mr. All-In. Marathon Petroleum keeps setting higher lows and higher highs, 4% dividend yield. Big day for energy, that's for sure. A lot of those stocks moving higher. Dr. J. NLY, a player in the mortgage space, and basically it looks like there's some upside call buying in this one, Scott. All right, thank you, everybody. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.